Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me as always is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's new, Sean? Cousin Aaron just pointed out that February is the second month of the year, and that this is the second February that we've recorded a reunion. He offered me some double mint gum, and I said to that, nope. How are you, Paul? (laughs) Doing all right now, Sean, but watch out for crazy old bat Uncle Jack. He's too old to be running around doing the three-legged race, but he can't handle the truth. Anyway, this month, we have another special guest, Paul Wildenberger. Uh, How are you doing today, Paul? More importantly, though, what special dish did you bring to the reunion? Well, guys, thanks for having me. I'm doing great today. Just getting over a little cold, so excuse my nasal uh, voice. Today, I brought some of my homemade salsa. Ooh, uh, I think it'll some little nosh on while we're waiting for everybody else to arrive. So, you know, I, I, I make it at home. It's tomato, cilantro, jalapenos, a little onion, and the most important ingredient, love. Oh, wait, wait, <laughs> I, wait I read that wrong. Cloves. <laughs> okay, sorry. And also, if it's spicy, it'll help clear up our sinuses. Oh, yes, good idea. We could all use that. We could all use that. All right. Well, we're glad to have you, Paul. So, Sean, why don't you remind everybody what our show is all about? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Black Lightning, and even the Tales of Gotham City. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Paul, before we get started, please tell us your relationship to the Batman family. How did you get into the book? Who's your favorite Bat Family member? Stuff like that. All right. So this is the era of comic books that I love, but this was a little bit before my regular comic book collecting time. I was a little young at the time, so I would get find things at 7-Eleven Spinner Racks. I never saw Batman Family. I would have picked it up if I had, but I never saw it. I didn't actually start collecting until you guys started your podcast because I thought, well, you know what? This is a great melding of things that I love. I love the old dollar books. So I loved it when we got into the, the full length books. Detective Collins became the dollar book. I love those. I love the Superman family, you know, Batman family. I love the idea of these just the little short stories, sometimes connected, sometimes not. But it's also that, that same time period. I love comic books from the 70s. So I started picking this up. Now, this, this network in general has, has caused me to spend a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I Welcome to the that, eBay club. <laughs> yeah, Batman family, treasuries, digest. Human fly, for goodness sake. (laughs) I've been picking it up all of it. I'm loving every minute of it. So it's been worth the money. So don't worry. That's great. Do you have a favorite member of the family? I think Robin, just because that is the character I've grown up with. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, watch the Batman TV show from 66. I love Batgirl. Non-Craig, oh my goodness. But I think Robin is going to be the one that I most related to when I was younger. That's really neat. Well, it's a heady experience to think that we caused somebody to uh, go out and buy issues of the Batman family, Sean. I don't know. So, all right, if you're ready to start it, let's talk about issue number 14, cover date of October 1977. It's another one of these eight times a year distribution things. And it was released on July 18th, 1977, according to Mike's Amazing World. Same page count at 48 for 60 cents with two new stories and with a fabulous cover by Jim Aparo. 
Paul, do you want to take a stab at maybe describing the cover for the listeners and then and then we can give our general thoughts on the cover? Of course. So what we have here is in the foreground is Batwoman melting away. She's just basically a head and shoulders and very little else. Just her costume is just heaped on the ground. Meanwhile, Robin is swinging in. Batgirl is diving in at, towards whoever the villain is holding a gun. It's a ray gun, uh, but it looks suspiciously like all those disc guns that I used to have as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, they're foam discs. Back when we were kids, they were hard plastic. <laughs> we, we, didn't, we didn't fool around. We went for the real thing. Yeah, so I, yeah, I love this cover. Uh, Jim Apparel art is great. The only question I have about the cover is, who's in front, Batgirl or Robin? Because she seems like she's behind him. You know, him, he looks like he's, he's he's swinging in front of her, but her hand is reaching out in, in front of his foot, which should be oh, interesting, way far ahead. So I'm not sure exactly about the the layout. Here. Yeah, she's in front of the orange blast too, but the orange right. blast is hitting Robin. Right. So my guess is they're like, well, you can't have Batgirl behind the orange blast. So yeah, Robin's dead smack in the middle here. I like the little touches because you can tell that they're at the fair or whatever, because you've got the flags on the left and the carousel. And I guess it's like some sort of space Dumbo ride at the top. I mean, obviously the main part here is Batwoman just sort of melting away like the Wicked Witch and saying, you'll fade away just like me. So Sean, how about you? I know in the past I've been, like almost anything I say is going to sound too negative. I think I've been like lukewarm to Jim Aparo. I'm not ever flabbergasted by his artwork. I don't think his, I always say beautiful. I don't think his artwork is necessarily beautiful. But I will say this cover, I absolutely love this cover. Everything about this cover works. Like the layout, the colors, everything is just perfectly placed. You understand everything that's going on. The folds of Batwoman's costume is just so well done. Robin front and center not saying anything. Actually, Batgirl and Robin not saying anything. It's all Batwoman's word balloons. Even the lettering, you'll fade away just like... Like it's it's, it's wonderful. Like everything about this is fantastic. I like how the word balloons draw you eye down to Batwoman and the expression on her face is like, watch out, don't let what happened to me happen to you. So yeah, no, that's very well composed. That's for sure. Yeah, this is one of my favorite Batman family covers. And we will post the image of this cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners, where is that? So that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So let's go for it, Sean. Let's jump into that first story. Okay. The first story is Old Superheroines Never Die, They Just Fade Away, starring Batgirl, Robin, and Batwoman. It's 24 pages, written by Bob Rizakis, penciled by Don Heck. The inker is Bob Wycheck. I'm guessing that's how you say the last name, W-I-A-C-E-K. It was later reprinted in Batgirl, The Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 2, Hardcover 2019, and Robin, The Bronze Age Omnibus, Hardcover 2020. Robin, Batgirl, and Batwoman in Old Superheroines Never Die, They Just Fade Away. A hot shower and 12 hours of sleep are the goals for most adults, Barbara Gordon included. Very much earned after her adventure last issue, but alas, it's not to be, for tap tap tapping on her door is not a raven, but a bat. A Batwoman who Wicked Witch of the Wests her way into nothingness. And then, in a now familiar Rosakis rewind, We find ourselves a few hours before the first scene where Batwoman comes out of retirement to trace down two two two-bit thugs who are looting an upscale Georgetown home. 
The thugs blast Kathy with the convincer and then beat him. Our story then jumps back to the present day of 1977, where some residual particles on Batwoman's costume activates Batgirl's Ididic, 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 something like that. I can never remember the correct pronunciation for <laughs> photographic memory. And she jets off to New Carthage to talk to a former teacher that she had, Professor Joseph New. Professor New lets Babs and us know that what happened to Kathy is a result of a highly contagious virus and will do the same to the two of them and pretty much everyone on Earth. And if that wasn't horrible enough, we now switch scenes to an even worse situation. Dick Grayson's finance class research paper is still not finished. After making up with Lori and then making out with Lori, Dick receives a call which sends him to the chemistry department at Hudson U. After a quick, why are you wearing that? The dynamite duo jet back to DC to talk to the homeowners where Batwoman was zapped. And then a thoroughly exciting and utterly unnecessary action scene follows, but it does have some acrobatics, so I'll allow it. Our heroes find a clue which leads them to the Washington Monument and a Carney convention. They put two and two together and come up with an incredibly lucky break because with no detective work whatsoever, the bad guy outs himself. In a completely not so lucky break, Robin gets blasted with the convincer. A rough and tumble scene follows where the dynamite duo knocks out the bad guys and are able to get a hold of the convincer, the gun that got us into this mess. Robin calls up Kid Flash. Maybe it would have been easier if the Teen Titans had bracelets with all of their logos on it, like Wendy Harris gave to Jaina to some of the super friends, to super speed them all the way back to Hudson U again, to give the convincer to the professor so that he can make a radio out of it and get them off of the island. The professor clicks the quote unquote, bring back to life instead of making them disintegrate button and Batgirl and humanity are saved. And then Batwoman talks about going back into retirement, which had better not happen. Paul W., what did you think of the story? This is definitely 70s goodness here. (laughs) (laughs) Does it always make sense? It doesn't. (laughs) We just get rewind on several of our episodes (laughs) there, right? You know, but it's just, it's just full of fun. It's like, it's nonstop. It's just, you know, hey, we've got this certain number of pages. Let's get the story in. We get into the details of it. We can talk about some certain aspects. But it just, it's just a nonstop crazy story that seems to be very endemic of, of this, not only Batman family, but all of the 70s comic books I love so much. How about you, Paul? Yeah, same thing. I mean, Elephant in the Room is Don Heck artwork. It's not all that great compared to some of the artists we've seen in prior issues. But I think Mr. Brain and Dr. Braun are pretty funny for the villains, and I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) Yeah, overall, it's a fun story. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I'm 11 years old, and I'm like, how can they bring Batwoman back from like atoms? (laughs) You know, like, what kind of gun is this? And who invented this gun? Dr. Brain? After the wackiness of the Outsider last issue, this one's just as wacky with not as good heart. (laughs) How about you, Sean? Oftentimes on the Fire and Water podcast, never get any other comic podcast. You'll hear like a writer who writes stories and things happen because they happen. (laughs) This very much is is a thing. Yeah. The incredible revelation about this or the, the incredible shock about this story is, and we'll get to it when we get to it. There is Don Heck artwork in this that sit down listeners, I think is 
beautiful. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, we'll get to that part then. Very good. And so let's get into it. And it, it's a little bit different than a Rosakis Rewind because this one's only one page. So you start off in the present today. Babs, here's the knock at the door. It's Batwoman and she's melting away. Fantastic start to the story. Yeah, although I prefer the Don Newton version of that at the last page of the last issue. But yeah, no, very cool. Then we go to Georgetown. By the way, if anyone has never been to Georgetown, definitely go because it's very fantastic. It's, the downtown is very alive. Lots of shops and stores. It's really great to walk around. So definitely get to Georgetown because it's great. And in one of those mansions, Brawn and Brain, <laughs> like that, what a great team. Now, when we first see them and they're looting the house, I didn't realize that there was a size difference. <gasps> I had the same note, Sean. I had the same note. And, and I've had this issue for all these years. I have never realized. I read this yesterday. And I'm like, wait, and then you get further in the story and they're drawn at different sizes. And then you yeah. go back and even knowing it, I don't think you can really tell from the way these panels are. Yes, yeah, I was going to say like on page three, it just looks like it's perspective because look how small Batwoman is. And yeah. then it's it's not rendered in a way to make you understand that Mr. Brain or Dr. Whatever his name is, 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 is a little person. Yeah, I didn't get that either. How about you, Paul W.? Yeah, I was the same way with the sizes here and tried to turn it up. You know, it's like the, the big man is the brain. The small yeah. man is the broad. I like that. Yeah, that's I true. I do like that. Now, back to page one, I have to just point out that the caption just above the title of the story, that is straight out of Batman 66. I can hear William Tozier, you know, like, <laughs> mysteries within mysteries, puzzles. Yeah, I could just hear the Batman <laughs> narration go doing that that right there. I think Rosakis was definitely, you know, had just watched the rerun of Batman right before he did Or maybe it. you just watched the movie where all the uh, people are turned into dust. The Batman 66 yeah. movie. Oh. I hadn't even thought of that, but that's yeah. probably the inspiration for this story. Good point. With Commodore Schmidlap. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah, that's a that's a great catch. Good, good job. Good job. No, well, it just I mean, again, I've had all this comic all these years, and I just reread it over the last couple of weeks, and it didn't occur to me. And then, of course, Batwoman is trying to stop him. She gets knocked out. I'm willing to that this is okay. You know, it's her first time back, her first her first solo job. That's fine. No knocks on Kathy whatsoever. I'm a Kathy fan. <laughs> and she does look good at the top of page four, Sean. I think that's a cool panel where she's dodging the blast. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, we go back to the present. Batgirl's leaning over the costume, and she sees the residue, and, and that kicks in her photographic memory. <laughs> uh, she jets off to Professor Wu, and it's great because she says, now I know why Batman has his own plane. Renting this one's going to put a big dent in Babs Gordon's bank account. <laughs> I like that one, Amen, too. sister. Amen. <laughs> I love how she just hops right in it and heads on up to Hudson University, which, of course, this professor has transferred to Hudson University by now. You know, she talks to Professor Wu. He says, yeah, you know, this is this is a super not cool thing. <laughs> I suspect that the person who unleashed this virus isn't even aware of what it is and what it is doing hell-bent on annihilating every living creature on Earth. Yeah, and we're all familiar with uh, yeah. deadly viruses these <laughs> days, unfortunately. It reads differently now. The best part of the story for me is the exchange with Laurie and Dick on the next couple pages. Like you said, he still hasn't finished that term paper for finance, which, again, I think is a riot. You really feel sorry for Laurie, right? Nowadays, Dick would tell her. See, I don't, as a kid reading this, I was always like, well, of course you should tell her, you should tell her. Now that I'm a grown up and like had gone through like my dating life and everything. Like if I'm dating someone, if you do have a secret identity, like at what point do you tell this person you're dating about your secret identity? 
And he's only a couple comic months away from dumping her and starting going out with Starfire. So I guess that's probably right. true. Yeah, and, and you don't know how long someone's going to be around in your life. So like, do you tell them? Do you not? I'm agreeing with Dick. And there also is the protecting them aspect of it. Look, Barry Allen was married for years before Iris found out. That I think is weird. Later, like the retcon with Superman and Lois and like proposing and then tell, like that I think right. would be... Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. At the point where you think you're going to propose to them, I actually think maybe you should tell them before you propose. Right. Yeah. It's a tough one. It's a, it's a thing on the TV shows and stuff all the time. It's like you keep a secret and then they're mad you kept it a secret. By the time you're willing to tell them you're involved in a more significant relationship, you can't tell them before that. But then when you tell them, then they're mad. So it's just a big mess. I'm actually surprised the the trend is to get rid of secret identities because I think there is emotional resonance to mine from that story. Like from, you know, do you tell this person, do you not tell this person, what happens if you tell this, what happens if you tell this person and they don't want to be involved with a superhero, then that person knows that. I think there's story potential and benefits from secret identities. And of course, with this story, like one of the last things Lori says is like, be careful hinting that she knows, which makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. That's the first hint we've got that she has a, at least I, I've noticed. I don't know, Paul, if you noticed that, but I, I did like that. So yeah, I thought that sequence was good. I'll be honest with you, Lori looks pretty good in this, but not as good as Jose Delbo or Kurt Swan or any of the others rendered her, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And and I'm not I'm not piling on. Yeah, she looks better under other pens. And then Robin bursts into the chem lab. From the looks of it, I think Professor Wu and Batgirl don't necessarily care about Robin because <laughs> like the, the costume is just out on the table, not wrapped up or anything. Like they're in their suits. Robin's coming in and they, they called him and told him to come over, but didn't bother like doing anything. to protect him. Hey, not that we want to, you know, steal from Gabriel's horn, but PPE in the 1970s was not the same <laughs> as it is today, right? <laughs> the thing I thought was a riot were those plastic outfits. Pretty good story device because you got to have Batgirl be able to participate in the story. But it's pretty funny if you look at it today with today's again with today's eye and this isn't what i was talking about but i do think that don heck draws it really well like you understand like it's a plastic oh yeah absolutely oh, i would yeah, definitely yeah. agree with that yeah don heck does a good job with it but i'm wondering did it make it easier or harder for the inker and the colorist to have to give that outline you know the empty space around every character you're right it's extra lines it's got to be a little harder and and certainly more nuanced but yeah it's a good point paul i don't know but you, you definitely can tell what it is i i would agree with you there sean then they go back to the house in Georgetown, Georgetown, Hudson, you, Georgetown, Hudson, you. <laughs> yeah, they go back to the house in Georgetown to talk to the people whose house was burglared by Braun and Brain. Kind of like don't really understand, like they talk to them and I kind of think nothing comes from this, right? But they go out and someone is stealing their car. I think it was the attempt to show Robin doing detective work. That's okay. what I gathered from it. We had no idea Batwoman tried to stop the thieves. And she says, I spotted her blueprint. Two burglars broke in, leaving traces of garden dirt that went to a parking space. Not much. Otherwise, what other lead do they have? I mean, Kathy shows up to Babs's apartment and melts, right? She didn't have time to tell her where she was doing. So that that's what I thought it was for, Sean. But I, it's a little bit of a weak pop point. Then there's the thing with the car and Robin does that. But then it says, you know, leaving the car thieves in the cabbie's custody. Robin races back to pick up that girl. And where was I before we were interrupted? You were about to show me something. Oh, yes. The clue that tells us where to go next which is like the cotton candy stub. But I don't get where that kind of like comes from. Yeah. It happens because it has to. <laughs> <laughs> it was next to the getaway car. 
brain and brawn are just, well, you know, before we break in, you want to finish this cotton candy? Nah, just toss it. What? <laughs> <laughs> now, I will say, even though it's utterly unnecessary, it is very thrilling. It's a very, like, action-packed sequence with Robin hailing a cab. He gets the cab. I love it. He stands <laughs> on top of the cab. I am fully prepared to think that Robin could throw a batarang <laughs> through one window, have it come out the other way, and come back to him. I'm fine with that. But the fact that the car is moving and he has the rope, that's the part. <laughs> and I know eventually he jumps on and yeah. gets there. Yeah. From the moment the rope is through the car and coming back to him, that car is traveling. You know, he had the top, the behind the back batarang throw. <laughs> <laughs> to get this one but no i have a note on that one i think these were the probably the strongest art pages in my opinion although I, i'll be honest with you i still think a lot of the kurt swan action sequences were were better but this one was pretty good mm-hmm. but it, it is pretty preposterous jumping between cars he does a flip according to the motion lines yeah flip from what it has been established <laughs> yeah it's like a bump in the road <laughs> yeah. It it has been established he's a showman, but yeah, he's just showing off. Luckily, the cotton candy stub leads them to the Washington Monument. This isn't what I was talking about with the art, but on page 16, there's a great shot of the mall mm-hmm. and you have the Washington Monument. And if you really look at the top of the Washington Monument, you can still see where Robin's rope is <laughs> from the first he, issue. Where, where, yeah, yeah. That's how dedicated Don Heckes. Now, that's not what I was talking about, but... I think you must have drawn that in on your copy when you were a kid, Sean. So it is neat because Kathy King arranged for a carny convention on the Washington Mall, which is fantastic. I just wanted to go to a carny convention. That's the (laughs) interesting part to me. Like, what do you... Do they swap stories of how to swallow swords? I mean, what... what, what? Well, and of course, me with the Carney Convention, I was scanning this panel, hoping to find the ghost of Boston Brand, but he did not show up. That's fine. It's Batman Family Reunion, not Dead Man Talking. How do we know it's really a Carney Convention? It's not just the Island of a Thousand Thrills machine, right? How do we know? (laughs) Because of the cost. So it costs a lot to go on the Island of a Thousand Thrills. Okay. All right. All right. So back on Robin, wander around the Carney Convention, which will never not be fun to say. <laughs> and then here's our first real look at the size difference between Brain and Brawn right. on page 17, because then you really, really see it. Yeah. So they're just walking around, meandering, and they walk into their tent. So Brawn flips out like he's so that guilty conscious, and he throws the guy at Robin. I love that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> fastball special maybe before there was a fastball special <laughs> but robin doesn't love it because he gets zapped by the convincer you know a detail yeah. i hadn't noticed was batgirl's wearing her cape and the plastic that goes around her also completely envelops her cape as a separate yeah. compartment it's like it's not like tucked up against her waist or anything well it uh, might have been affected you know yeah <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> It's a cake pouch. A cake pouch. I think that's funny. And then Robin tries one, two, three power punch action. I do like the fact that he tries to shoot Batgirl with the ray and nothing happens. Yeah. And he's like, you ain't Supergirl. (laughs) (laughs) Then Batgirl KOs him. So the two bad guys are out. And then Robin calls Kid Flash. Yeah. You forgot to mention that Robin does actually get blasted just like he does on the cover. 
Oh, he does. Yes. I'm sorry. So Robin is infected by this virus. He has to yeah. quarantine for 14 days, just like I've been doing. So. <laughs> right. But, but really, I don't know if that matters because Professor Wu and Batgirl did it to him like yeah. two hours ago. Yeah. Back <laughs> it's true. He's probably already been infected. Super cool that he calls Kid Flash. Yeah. So we get like a Teen Titans mini crossover. Yay. Yeah. And then, of course, love comic book science. Now, it kind of has been established that Professor Wu is familiar with this. So that that's cool. But of course, he, you know, whips up a batch of anti-compression. And then page 23, the bottom corner is, before George Perez, the most beautiful shot of Kid Flash I have ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that is a good I, shot. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I'll agree. I don't know who, I don't know how, I don't know why. It does kind of look like Kid Flash was literally cut and pasted <laughs> from like some other book or someone else drew it yeah. or something, but I don't care. The effect on him, I don't yeah. know if it's Dipatone or whatever that yeah. is. But yeah. Like that effect I think looks fantastic. I love that image of Kid Flash. If you're playing the Batman Family Reunion drinking game, it is beautiful. <laughs> it's similar to the effect that on, on a couple pages back with, with uh, Braun, where he's shooting the one you, you yeah. mentioned, where he says, you're not Supergirl, you ain't Supergirl. It's the same kind of effect. It's in the, sh it's the shading. Yeah. Now yeah. we do have a different inker, right? We don't have Vince Coletta. We have Bob Wyacek. So I think some of that shading may be, you know, the inker taking a little extra time and doing that and doing his best. But I, I agree with you. Both those panels are, are really good. And of course, because I feel the need to balance it out. Then on the next page on 24, when Batwoman's costume ex is expanding, we know that Robin was exposed to the virus and we know he was hit by the beam. And apparently that aged him down to an eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> because if you, if you look in that panel, he looks like he's like seven or eight years old compared to Batgirl. <laughs> The one funny line, and I'm sorry, I should have mentioned it earlier at the top of 22 was Robin's, you know, I think my body's starting to disintegrate. I'm like, I wonder what that feels like. <laughs> How do you know when your body, well, you kind of have, like you in the Avengers light. movie where they all start to turn into dust? Right? You have the feeling of lightheadedness, lightbodiness. Yeah. Well, the best thing about the whole thing is that that pesky paper is going to get done. That's been like three <laughs> issues now that that finance paper hasn't been written. So thank goodness Kid Flash is there to, to write it down for Robin. As he dictates, he's not going to have Kid Flash do it because Dick has morals. He's going to do the paper, but he's going to yeah. get his buddy to write it down. And then we have a next issue blurb. Man, some of the lettering there. That, that Robin logo is shaky at best. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Martin Gray will have something to say about that little Robin logo. <laughs> But I'm glad there's going to be a next issue. That's right. Oh, my goodness. So overall, what'd you think, Paul? I thought it was a great story. Like I said, it's a lot of fun. Doesn't make a lick of sense. No. <laughs> but the fact that it's Kid Flash. I mean, the Flash has always been my favorite superhero. Okay. Kid Flash has always been my favorite Teen Titan. So the fact that he had a guest appearance, that, you know, that, that warmed my heart. I love that. Yeah. Nice little surprise guest appearance. We like that. That's definitely cool. And part yeah. of the Rosakas verse. Yeah. Yeah. And he was always great about tying Robin. Teen Titans continuity right. and with this yep. and with this issue. Yeah. And with this book. Yeah. Well, before we leave this story, we spent a little time beating up on Don Heck's work. <laughs> but I do want to acknowledge that he's had a long and frankly pretty auspicious career. So I want to do the Bat Family history on Don Heck. I've got a few sources like Wikipedia and, and Mike's Amazing World, but there's also a whole book about Don Heck from Tomorrow's. I do not have. It's called Don Heck, a work of art by John Coates. And I'll put the links to all that stuff, including the link to the book in the show notes. So Heck was born in the Jamaica neighborhood of Queens, New York City in 1929. He learned art through correspondence courses, as well as his vocational high school, the Woodward Wilson Vocational High School, and at a community college in Brooklyn. 
in December 1949. So 1949, at the recommendation of a college friend, he landed a job at Harvey Comics, your favorite, Sean. There, what he did, he took photostats and repurposed newspaper strips and turned them into comic book form, including the work of his idol, who was Milton Kenneth. Heck remained at Harvey for two and a half years, and after that, he started to do some art, and his first published comics work appeared in two comic media titles, both cover dated in September 1952. The war comic War Fury Number 1 and the horror comic Weird Terror Number 1. Heck's work continued to appear in those titles and in the horror anthology Horrific. Ever, you ever see those horrific comics? The ones where the guy's holding a like a head been cut off and the, those, oh, yeah. you know, the sort of seduction of the innocent. The body's off to the side. Yeah. He also worked on the adventure titled Danger, Western Death Valley, and many other titles until the company went out of business in 54. In 54, Don Heck met Stan Lee who was then editor-in-chief of Atlas Comics, right, before Marvel. And as Heck recalled, I went up there on a Wednesday afternoon. Stan never saw anybody on Wednesdays, and he never saw anybody in the afternoon. But he came out. He looked at my first two pages and said, oh, hell, I know what your stuff looks like. Come on in. I got a story for you. And that's how he landed his gig at Atlas and later Marvel. He became a staff artist. His first known work for the company was a five-page horror story, Werewolf Beware, in Mystery Tales number 25 from 1955. Atlas let all their freelancers go in 1957. Things were really starting to get in bad shape. And for a brief interlude, Heck made his living drawing airplane models. That's how he made his living for like a year. I don't know how one makes a living just drawing airplane models. It must have been a lot of airplane models in 1957, but that's what he did. I thought that was pretty interesting. But after about a year, Heck returned to Atlas, along with some guy named Jack Kirby, to work on comic books Journey into Mystery and Tales of Suspense. And this era obviously is known now as the pre-superhero Marvel. And this is probably the peak art of his career. Uh, to talk about that, a quote from comics artist Jerry Ordway, the extraordinary and network favorite, described Heck's work at this time, calling the artist, quote, truly underappreciated. His Atlas pre-Marvel work was terrific with a clean, sharp style and an ink line that wouldn't quit. Of course, this led to Heck's first superhero assignment, the first Iron Man story which appeared in Tales of Suspense 39, 1963. Heck recalled, Kirby designed the costume because he was doing the cover. Covers were always done first, but I created the look of the characters like Tony Stark and Pepper Potts, right? Heck was the artist's co-creator of several new characters in Iron Man, including three movie stars, the Mandarin in Tales of Suspense 50, Black Widow in 52, and Hawkeye in Tales of Suspense number 57. Concurrent with drawing Iron Man, Heck also succeeded Kirby as penciler on the Avengers with number nine, which has the introduction of Wonder Man. What's interesting, he talks about he inked his own pencils for many years, and he transitioned to the Marvel method of doing comics and was assigned the help of the inker. During this time, he also co-created the Swordsman, the supervillain Power Man, the Collector in number 28, and the supporting character Bill Foster, who much later became the superhero Black Goliath and Giant Man, and who, of course appeared in Ant-Man and the Wasp, played by Morpheus, I mean, Lawrence Fishburne. By the 1970s, his Marvel work became less frequent. Heck obtained assignments from DC, beginning with House of Secrets 85. His first DC superhero work was The Flash, number 198. And this is where I probably saw him early on, The Flash work. He eventually mm -hmm. garnered additional work, including romance comics, and then The Batgirl, Backup. We had him on the Batgirl story a couple issues ago, and Jason Bard and Detective Comics. And he did Rose and the Thorn, Lois Lane, 
He had a short run on Wonder Woman, starting with number 204, which is notable as the issue where she gets her powers and costume back, as well as the first appearance of Nubia. Peck still occasionally worked at Marvel, uh, penciling the odd issue of Daredevil, Submariner, Ghost Rider, and others. He drew Giant Size Avengers number four, which featured the wedding of the Vision and the Scarlet Witch. And I actually have that issue signed by Steve Englehart, so uh, it's a favorite of mine. Tony Isabella and Heck launched a new superhero team. The Champions in October 1975. But in 77, he began almost exclusively working at DC. He explained, quote, I left Marvel for a change of pace. I kept getting all the new inkers. Everyone who walked in, I got them. A bad inker can kill artwork. I once got some pages back from inking and I just tore them up. That's how bad they were. With writer Jerry Conway, Heck did create Steel, the Indestructible Man, another TV star. After that was canceled, he went to The Flash and then reunited with Conway on Justice League of America, including that year's crossover with the All-Star Squadron and the JSA. He then returned to Wonder Woman and drew that until it was canceled in 86. And he also drew one of the issues in the DC Challenge limited series, which is close to my heart. (laughs) In the late 80s and early 90s, he returned to Marvel. He did anthology work in Marvel Comics Presents and Marvel Fanfare. He did a smattering of work for independent comics, such as Topps Night Glider, Hero Comics, Mr. Fix-It, Vortex NASCAR Adventures, which I, I'm, that's interesting, and Millennium Publications H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu, The Whisperer in Darkness. His last known comics work was The Theft of Thor's Hammer by writer Bill Mantlow in Marvel Superheroes number 15, 1993. He died of lung cancer in 1995. And according to Mike's, his impressive career includes over 700 story credits, which is a lot, almost 8,500 published pages. I think that's the highest total we've seen in over 100 covers. But finally, I think a good summary was given by Roy Thomas, who said of Don Heck, Don was unlucky enough, I think, to be a non-superhero artist who starting in the 60s had to find his niche in a world dominated by superheroes. He amalgamated into his own style certain aspects of Jack Kirby's style and carved out a place for himself as one of a handful of artists who have real importance during the very early days of Marvel. So that's Don Heck. Thanks for letting me talk about him. Again, 1970s Don Heck may not have been our cup of tea on the Dynamite duo, but he had a long and great career and was appreciated by a number of his uh, contemporaries. I will admit, you know, Don Heck is not one of my favorite, but he was the premier artist on, on The Flash yep. uh, when I co- started collecting Justice League for a number of years. Yep. So I was reading those. It, because I read those books, I'm a comic book collector today. So there must be something to it. He was doing the work that it got me into the comics uh, that, I, that I love. Yep, I agree with you 100%. He could tell a story. You knew what was happening. We knew what those plastic suits were, even though we were joking about how they look. And I think as kids and as beginners... It's still dynamic and interesting, but I think there were an awful lot of better artists, mm-hmm. certainly at that stage of his career. And I, I haven't seen a lot of that early stage that Jerry Ordway was talking about. You might want to try to search some of that out, see if I can find some of those and just to check it out. But I agree with you, Paul. Now we move on to the Bat timeline. We're going to take a look at everything else that was published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And we're looking at comics that were released in July of 1977. Sean and I will do a quick run through the Batman-related titles, and then we'll jump to you, Paul, and see what else was on your pull list. So the first Batman title was Batman number 292. So that many deaths of the Batman story continues with the testimony of the Riddler. That's exciting. That John Callan art with Jim Apparel cover. I've talked before about my first issue, Batman Family, going over to the newsstand in Spring Grove with my dad on the motorcycle. I also got this issue. Oh, at the same time? Oh, very cool. No, no, no. No, it wasn't the same. Oh, okay. It wasn't the same. A later trip. I totally remember getting this issue. I love that storyline. The Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed. So if you haven't read those issues, read them because they're, they're so cool. Yep. I, I, I love them. The next book is The Brave and the Bold, number 137, and it is a team-up of 
Batman and the Demon. And it was written by Bob Haney, of course. (laughs) And the cover is fantastic because it has Batman turning into a kind of man bat. So that's cool. There was no issue of Detective Comics this month, but there was a Justice League number 147, of course, with Batman. And it's funny, I didn't get this issue at the time, but I do remember picking it up. And I remember looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many superheroes and like being excited. But for some reason I didn't get it. And I don't know if it's because like I couldn't get money from my mom or dad, or like maybe I found a different issue, but I definitely remember picking this up and seeing like all these heroes who I had no idea who they were because it's a crossover with the JLA, the Justice Society and the Legion of Superheroes. So it's probably like 543 superheroes in this comic. I have to take a second to talk about limited collector's edition C-52, the best of DC. This was an awesome treasury limited collector's edition. I covered this issue about a year or two ago on Treasury Cast with Rob. And wow, every story of this is great. If you haven't heard that episode or don't have that book, get it. The Batman story in it is Night of the Reaper from Batman 237, which of course guest stars Robin by O'Neill and Adams. Highest recommendation, one of my favorite treasuries. And I just want to interject quickly. There were plans for a volume. As I talk, I understand people probably think this is a joke. It's not. <laughs> there, were, there were plans for a volume two. I found this information on Wikipedia. I don't know how Wikipedia is, but I kind of am inclined to agree with this. So there was plans for a volume two and volume two was going to include The Brave and the Bold, number 42, which is a Hawkman story, The Menace of the Dragonfly Raiders. There was an all-star Western number 11, and that's a Jonah Hex story with the $100 deal. There was Superman number 247, and that's with the Guardians of the Universe. Oh, and yeah, I remember that story. Yeah. there be a Superman? Yeah, that's the Elliot Magan story. We talked about that one, Sean. Yep, and the last one was Green Lantern 75, and that's the Golden Obelisk of Quard. and has a great, guessing, Gil Kane mm-hmm. cover with Green Lantern in the middle and then like two force, two opposing forces are coming at either side. So I think I'll probably spend a day and read those and kind of make my own limited collector's edition cool. best of volume two. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, now the next one is one of my most beloved comic book stories ever. It's Super Friends number seven, and it's the introduction of the Wonder Twins, which is great enough. But also, like among Super Friends, this kind of is the Justice League, Justice Society crossovers because you have Super Friends members going out with Justice League members, going out with what would become the Global Guardians. And these three issues, oh my God, they are so fantastically wonderful. I love each of them. Chris Franklin talked about this with Rob on For All Mankind. The next issue, man, this was a good month because was a good Teen month. Titans 50. And, I, and I, I had both the Super Friends and Teen Titans off the stand. Teen Titans number 50. And that's with Titans East and Titans West. Even though Titans West wasn't really, really a thing, this would have been the beginning of it had it happened. And it's such a fantastic cover because Titans West are coming down from the top. Titans East are at the bottom. And we always talk about like the the two opposing forces coming at each other from left and right. This time it's from top to bottom and it's it's a fantastic cover. Love it. And then the last Bat Family appearance was World's Finest, number 247, dollar comic with a fantastic Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his, his name. name. 
cover. It's the one with the fastest Superman taking over the world. Now, this is the fourth dollar comic for World's Finest, which is one of my favorites, but it has been on a different month than Batman Family. So we haven't mentioned the dollar comics at World's Finest before. And because of the, you know, Batman Family went on this eight times a year thing, we're now mm-hmm. getting some different comics in our timeline, which is pretty neat. So other Paul, uh, <laughs> Paul W. <laughs> That's <laughs> all right. Uh, other Paul is fine by me, but Paul W. Okay. Yeah, Paul W. What what did you have on your full list this month? Obviously, the Flash. I got yeah. I got I got to get the Flash. Classic man. I have something with the red and yellow costumes. I, I just love them. <laughs> <laughs> if Firestorm was around <laughs> already here, I would have picked up that too. <laughs> then uh, from Marvel side, Invaders. I have a thing for World War II set comics. You know, All Star Squadron was one of my favorites, but th- before that, it was the Invaders. I guess I'm just like Roy Thomas. I don't know. <laughs> well, I agree with yeah, you. But yeah. I like the Invaders. I, I remember being a kid, not liking the, I've said this on the show before, but not really liking the artwork, right. but really enjoying the stories. Mm-hmm. And it's been 40 years, and somebody gave me the Invaders Omnibus that just came out for Christmas. I haven't oh, read that nice. yet. Those comics long gone i sold them long time ago so i haven't read those in many years so i'm actually really looking forward to reading that in 2023 and of course there's a lot of issues that you're looking through mike's amazing world and there's so many things i would love to have gotten but the only other thing that i know that i would have gotten at that age the one that i knew i would have gotten little archie little Little archie Archie. (laughs) you know archie was fine but little archie oh my goodness that (laughs) that was my that was my thing when i was a kid and for those who don't know i think Little Archie, it was more about they went on adventure. Yeah. Right? Yeah, a lot of kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. So, Sean, what do you have? Okay. I have Action Comics number 476. I have no doubt you have Action Comics number 476. (laughs) (laughs) As those who know my particular interests, (laughs) it stars Bartox, who has a fantastic outfit, maybe second only to Tyrock. (laughs) And Grimbork. Yeah, yes. And and in hopeful cosplay of appearances, like Paul W. said, Classic Man, I would have gotten that one. I have the Secret Society of Supervillains, and that is issue number 10. And it's fantastic because that's like a huge star sapphire zapping Captain Comet. That's a great issue. I have Spidey Super Stories, number 27. And that has a team up of Thor against Loki. So that would be fantastic. I already mentioned Super Friends. Okay, so the last book I'm going to mention is What If, number five. And it is What If Captain America Had Survived World War II. And I just recently got all of those collected editions, like in a paperback for What If. Just so great. And even if you don't know the original story, they always do like a quick little two or three page recap of it. And then jet off into the unknown i don't want to say it was always a great read for me because i only read them like last summer but i i love that book yeah when i was a kid what if was one of my favorites too just because i was nerdy like that i was like oh my gosh look at that spider-man joined the fantastic four. Oh my gosh this and i thought they were they were awesome i was hooked on those and uh what are you getting at the newsstand? So Amazing Spider-Man this month has uh, the Molten Man. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to think that's probably the first time I saw him. Avengers 164 versus the Lethal Legion has a cover by George Perez and interior art by John Byrne. Can't go wrong with that. Notable, Bionic Woman number one. Now, I never had it. I'm not sure I saw it. I love the $6 million man. I've mentioned that before. But issue number one of the Bionic Woman came out. I bought the Challengers of the Unknown, number 83. So these are some wild stories. You got Challengers of the Unknown. They spun out of a super team family. They came into the Challengers. They had the Swamp Thing. They had Dead Man in there. That's what, probably what you were going to just about say. They had very early Keith Giffen art behind fantastic Rich Buckler cover. And this one is no exception. 
And I'm really surprised either of you noticed Marvel took over the licenses for Hanna-Barbera and Flintstones number one and Scooby-Doo number one came out this month. I had both of those great stuff. We would be remiss without mentioning Human Fly number two for Max. So that came out this month. Marvel Team Up 62 probably would have been my first exposure to Ms. Marvel. Uh, unless you'd been in Avengers before that, which I don't think so. I think that was my introduction. Likewise, again, we're getting some different comics because the bi-monthly comics were in a different month. We got the Metal Men with an awesome apparel cover with the Metal Men led by Tina Platinum walking out, which I think is an awesome one. And again, Showcase 95, I really enjoyed that new Doom Patrol. I would never had read mm. the old Doom Patrol, so I thought the new Doom Patrol was neat. And then probably one of my favorites from this month, Super Team Family. Number 13, The Search for Gene Loring. I love yeah. this Adam-centered story. I, mean, I just reread it a few months ago. It doesn't make a ton of sense like many of these stories. It's Jerry Conway pulling all kinds of things together. I really dug the weird combination of, of heroes. Here we have the Adam, Aquaman, and Captain Comet. And it ties into the Justice League and the Secret Society of Supervillains. <laughs> and then the last one I want to point out is Walt Disney Showcase number 41 with Hervey the Love Bug goes to Monte Carlo. I, I, <laughs> I did not have this comic, but I loved Herbie movies when I was a kid. I remember watching them on the Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday mm -hmm. nights. And I'm sure I saw this movie then. Now, I do have a quick putting him on the spot for uh, Paul W. Um, so in the year of our Lord, July 1977, who do you think was the biggest, bestest, <laughs> most selling comic book creation that all of the kids, July 77, who would you imagine has the most comic appearances on the newsstand this Oh, wow. I'm going to pretend I've never listened to a past episode of this <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Was it Batman? Was it? <laughs> you could take Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, multiply them by three, <laughs> add them together, and I still don't think you could touch Richie Rich. Oh Eight. Oh. I thought last month we had 15 and I was like, oh my God, that's that's got to be the highest ever. And we get 18 this month. And again, for Harvey Completist, I'm going by the covers. Maybe there was like a Richie Rich story tucked into like a different Harvey. <laughs> that could be. But I will point out that Richie Rich is getting richer because we had Richie Rich's Millions, number 86. <laughs> Richie Rich's Billions, number 19. But we also have Richie Rich's Zillions, number six. <laughs> There's a best of the years. Man, I probably say it every month. And now my grandkids would have no idea who Richie Rich is. Like it's, Unbelievable. How does, that, how does that happen? I don't know how this happened. You know about your grandkids. My oldest is 22. He would know. I have no idea who Richie Rich was. It was like a certain <laughs> period of time. I had plenty of these. I, I had lots of these growing up. And Bat Cousins, don't get me wrong, I am not making fun. There were lots of times where I would buy a Richie Rich comic or Casper or Hot Stuff, right? Like, I, I liked the Harvey comic. Oh, yeah. Now we're going from a very rich character to a character who doesn't have a lot of money. Okay, there we go. Good segue. Great segue, Mr. Sean. <laughs> that wasn't in the script. I, I, I need to note that. That wasn't in the script. Yeah, you make sure they know that. I didn't write that. So. <laughs> We're going to talk about Man Bat starring in Cinematech. 
a nine-page gem scribed by Bob Rosakis, of course, with art by Howard Chaikin and ink by Joe Rubenstein, which I found a very interesting art team. So we open with a young couple about to be attacked by a bat-like creature. But as we zoom out, we see that is just a late-night movie on TV. Monster movie fanatic Chris Franklin, I mean Ambrose Robertson, <laughs> is up late and stands up to stretch his legs. He looks out the window, and what does he see? Our hero man bat flying into the apartment window right above his, of course. Ambrose is just a little unhinged and thus assumes that it is a bat creature of Satan which has taken over his neighbor. Meanwhile, the Langstroms get ready for bed and we find out who's been knocking at Francine's door at odd hours. Some guy named Bart or Bard. I wonder what he wants. We'll find out in a future issue. Anyway, Ambrose is determined to cure this tortured soul. To do so, he tricks man bat into his apartment the next night. He pulls out all the stops trying to kill slash help him when Kurt has the idea to pop his pill and turn back into a human. Ambrose is so astounded that his plan worked that he faints dead away. Kirk heads downstairs to bed. The end. That's it, really. Paul and Sean, thoughts on Cinematac? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Instead of Cinematac, I kept thinking that title should be something like Neighbors, am I right? <laughs> it's like, this is just one apartment up. That's it. He doesn't have to go into the city. doesn't have to fight a supervillain. He's just got to fight some guy who can't sleep at night watching bad movies. I wondered if who wrote this again. Was it Bob Rosakis? You know, did, did he have a neighbor making a lot of noise? <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to write a story where I go up and I stake him. <laughs> That's funny. How about you, Sean? What do you think? I am about to give this story the ultimate compliment. Oh. And it's a compliment I've never said about any story previously in Batman Family. This would be a fantastic, phenomenal power records. <laughs> you can have the sound of the TV. You can have the flapping of the wings. You would have the click of the TV. You have the boogity, 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 booty. You have the zapping of his claws on the rating. You have the ashtray flying through. You have the flamethrower. And eat like the water, shushing, you know, the freezing, all of these things. Like, I, I just think this could be like a fantastic power records. Like, That's really interesting. I My head didn't go there. You know where my head went? My head went to today. This story would be played as a comedy, that this would be yeah. the wacky neighbor next door, be the change of pace episode in the Man Bat TV show. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's hard to take this guy seriously, but, you know, he's giving Man Bat a hard time. I mean, Man Bat just helped take down the outsider and now he can't handle Ambrose. Come on. <laughs> Not a whole lot to it, but enjoyable. What do you guys think of the art? The closest thing I have to a complaint is, and I understand Howard Chaikin is a fantastic artist. And I think his Kirk and Francine, I, th I think they look fantastic. Yeah, they look good. The neighbor, I think he looks good. The only thing I'm, I'm not too keen on, and this I think is something that can trip up a lot of artists, is Mambat's ears. Hmm. Like they just really look off to me. Like they're, they're almost either like too wide or too fat like that's the only only complaint but like the layouts are great you know the background everything interesting you know and I, i'm a big chicken fan i mean i love american flag that was one of the first independent comics i ever read and i, I really was wowed by that and he's an interesting dude as well so i almost did the history on him but i thought the art was a little crude chicken has been around for a while like four or five years but joe rubenstein is relatively new less than a year i think in his i looked him up so i don't know i, I like both of their art 
better than this usually was my thinking but i agree with you that i thought kirk and francine look good and you can see francine it's one panel where you can see she's showing mm -hmm. on page three you see her when she's hugging kirk i always like taking it he did the shadow miniseries back when i was in oh yeah school. that yeah. was so that, to me that's what i think of when i think of howard taken is this that yep. miniseries this yep. is definitely earlier work not bad it's just it's he wasn't where he got to you know like like most artists he evolved over time yeah yeah i agree with you other than that there's not a heck of a lot to this story i don't know if you guys yeah. have any significant notes on it yeah now the only thing i find it hard to believe in new york there's only one guy staying up until 4 a.m watching <laughs> <laughs> that's the caption though it's like no one else in new york city stays up every single night to watch the monster mayhem at 4 a.m i doubt that it's the city that generally sleeps <laughs> <laughs> Early days, early days, yeah. Not to give too much away, but I will be discussing this story in depth a little bit later on in the show. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I, I, okay. I hear you. But I don't have much else to say about this story. I think it's great. I yeah. love this story. I, yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, that's a cute story. Yeah. So you want to move on, Sean? Yes. We are now going to go on to bat branding. And that's where we discuss the ads and letter pages, any other odds and ends in the issue. Paul, tell us what you have. So uh, real quick, I wanted to say there's a half page ad for Clark bars. So since we like to talk about food on the show, I, I thought we'd do it. <laughs> and I had no recollection of there being so many varieties of Clark bars. And I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's page. It's after page four of the first story. Right. Half a page Clark coconut, peanut butter log, crunchy Zagnut. Clark Zagnut, Clark Mint, which I have no recollection of, and then the regular Clark Bar. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I never really got Clark Bars. Yeah, I remember them on the shelves, and that's about it. Yeah. They weren't my favorites. <laughs> yeah. The next one we're going to talk about is a beloved Twinkies ad, and it is Wonder Woman in Kooky Lamoo on Broadway. I thought you'd like this one, Sean. <laughs> I think this is probably one of the most well-known Twinkies ads. It is interesting because like there's this huge billboard. So somebody accidentally touches a wrong wire and creates a short circuit, bringing this 50 foot woman to life. <laughs> um, now, the, the interesting thing is the first panel says Times Square, Steve Trevor posing for a publicity photo accidentally touches the wrong wire, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And then she comes to life and goes berserk. And then Kooky Lamu says, I'm a big star. Steve Howard, <laughs> you are to be my press agent. So I guess that's a mistake. Well, it's a mistake that they didn't catch that it, Steve Howard was the name he went by when he came back to life. He did go by Steve Howard for a period of the 70s there, but they called him Steve Trevor in the first panel and Steve Howard in the second panel. <laughs> so like she comes to life, Wonder Woman, I guess like gives her some Twinkies, I guess. What's happening with it? Like, is this 50 foot woman just going to live somewhere in the DCU? Like it doesn't <laughs> say anything about, they don't like defeat her. They don't stop her. Secret origin of Giganta. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. I'm going to say this. This page has the best art in the issue. <laughs> Diana looks fabulous yeah. in that circle panel. And yeah. then Kuki Lamar looks good too. I mean, it's Kurt Swan, obviously. And I'm going to guess Dick Giordano inked it, but I don't know. All right, so let's go on. So there was another page on the, on the opposite page of that. I really like these PSAs. There's a, an ad where you have Superman smashing through the page and it says, you can help Superman when you help special olympics you can help provide training and competition for the gutsiest athletes around as a volunteer coach in the special olympics so i, I really thought that was neat that they did this yeah i always loved the dc psas because they were always just like so meaningful and i think they really do help teach kids about important things that sometimes they're not exposed to the next thing we're going to talk about is batman's bureau of missing villains and this is the zodiac master real name unknown and his first and 
only appearance was Detective 323. And like, this is a cool page. It tells you about Dr. Zodiac. I guess is one adventure with Batman. The thing that makes me mad though, this really makes me mad. Okay, Zodiac Master had one appearance and the Symbol Master, he had a bunch of, how does the Signal Man, come on, Signal Man, he can't even, guy does have a name, you know that. Like he doesn't have something as like identifiable as Zodiac Master, like he is on point. Like that, so that really infuriated. I couldn't even remember Signal Guy's name. That's how bad I am about Uh, it. My favorite is the last panel where Batman shoots this ram's head at him, hits him right in the butt. (laughs) And the little bottom says, so he learned beating the Batman wasn't in the stars. When, and I'm surprised that in 1964, like Robin can make a butt joke in the comics. I was surprised because it's Robin says, haha, you certainly made Zodiac the butt of that attack. <laughs> like, I'm surprised like that slang was allowable. Must have got past the comics code that year in 1964. Uh, it's quite a cracky date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Now, this is where we normally talk about Batman family, and we certainly are, but we are also going to talk about the Batman family. Family special delivery page. That's super cool. And as always, we are going to invite Scott R. Taylor, Tom Morrissey, Mark Rischke, I'm going to say, Susanna Doyle, Paul Zuckerman, James F. Mills, John Carson, and Steve Rogers to the reunion. Who knew he was a fan of wow. Batman family? <laughs> One of my favorite Marvel heroes, it makes sense. So we're going to invite you to the reunion. If you've had a letter published, please let us know because we would love to hear all about that experience. And I think for me, most of the mail in the regular Batman family column was fairly standard and agree with what like we said. I do want to point out that Paul and I are not doing our jobs very well. Because Scott R. Taylor brings up Tony Gordon. Yeah. And Bob Rosakis says, if you saw Adventure Comics number 453, you know that Tony Gordon did show up again, quite unexpectedly too. And we skipped that, which we should have been, should have been on it. I do think that it's funny that he agrees with me that he thinks that Tony recognizing Babs immediately was kind of a stretch. But he does like Laurie. So he's okay with me. <laughs> Scott's okay with me. Now, the cool thing is uh, the Batman family special delivery page. That was neat because these were letters that were devoted just to like Batman family in general. Like it wasn't story specific points. It wasn't anything like that. Someone brings up Bruce Wayne adopting Dick Grayson as opposed to just having him be his ward. And then there's like a mega letter from Paul Zuckerman who is talking about who knows who, who knows who. <laughs> I, I love this that person who knows that person and that person knows that person's identity. So it figures that that person would know that one, but maybe not that one, but that one does know that one. And this one knows it. that one from the TV, but not in real life. I, a flow chart for this. Hold on. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that letter too, Sean and Paul. I thought that was great. There's another one about Robin's costume, which is fantastic. And they talk about how, you know, at this point they can't really change it, especially because of like licensing and things like that. That was the first I probably would have known about that kind of thing. They said, you know, we've got all these licensing deals. We can't possibly change Robin's costume. Nowadays, it's the opposite. The more costumes, the more licensing, right? Yeah. Just yeah. like the NFL, the more uniforms, the more yeah. helmets, the more this thing, the more stuff they can sell. Back then, it was you had to have the same. So I found that an interesting. I mean, that does not really qualify for Gabriel's horn, but it's kind of a, a 70s thing compared to today. And then it's funny because Steve Rogers asks if he can put more than one letter into an envelope. <laughs> Saving his pennies. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Penny saved is a penny earned. And the fact that they included it in the letter column 
it's like, well, you know, look, we've got an inch. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, who's got I the mean, shortest yeah. letter i wonder if that letter appeared in any other letter pages <laughs> maybe <laughs> hey that was that weird letter that came bouncing in on top of a shield let's pick that up <laughs> he's like i frozen the lights came back just for this come on <laughs> we've been trying to figure that out since the 40s <laughs> so next up if you look opposite page four of the man bat story really neat ad presenting the best of dc so this is for that same limited collector's edition c52 we talked about earlier and what was interesting on this and rob and I talked about it on the episode was that they didn't showcase the covers of these mm-hmm. stories. They showcased splash pages of these stories. And I think we guessed that some of it was because not all of the stories were the lead story of that issue. Mm-hmm. So they took those splash pages. And so you've got a great, great ad here. Everything is in sort of this blue wash, but the main character is in white. You've got the little Kandorians carrying Superman for the last days of Superman. You've got the Batman image where he's sort of impaled to the tree and for Night of the Reaper, the Flash, where it's just the Flash in the white with that great logo, the doorway to the unknown, stealing the mm-hmm. challengers, the unknown logo. And then the Jim Aparo page, the demon within, and it's got Kane and the little monster behind it, was, which was the kid, which I thought that was pretty cool. And then the Dirty Job logo, which was all a great, fantastic story. It's an ad to buy this issue. And I don't know, I just think this ad is really cool. I don't know if subtle is the right word, but it's just a really neat way to portray the stories. But you still have a focus on the highlight of each story, like who's in it. So I thought that was really cool. And I love this issue. So I wanted to say something about it. I'm a huge fan of the treasuries. And yeah, this ad is really striking. Maybe it was done because they didn't have the cover of the treasury done, but I don't care. Like, I I think it's fantastic. And it shows you each specific story that is in the book. I think that's great. You want to bring us home, Sean? And the last ad we're going to talk about is the DC Book Brigade sale. (laughs) So you have the fantastic Batman and Superman from the 30s to the 70s books. Both of those are great. The Wonder Woman collection that's similar to that, but not exactly the same. And then the absolute fantastic Secret Origins of the Super DC Heroes, which I received as a family Christmas present. Thank you, Cousin Paul. Yay! Finally have it. And the other cool thing is they talk about other issues that they have on sale, a lot of like number one issues. And I'm, I'm not going to read all of them because that would make our shows even longer than they already are. But there is Joker, Man Bat, uh, Supergirl number one, Shazam one, two, and three, Super Team Family number one, DC Superstars number one, which is like a Teen Titans reprint yep. issue. Four Star Spectacular, and of course, Batman Family number one. And issues six, seven, and eight of first issue special. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah. technically first issues. They're all first <laughs> issues, right? They're all first issues. Moving on, we don't have a third story, so we're going to just finish up with our trip to Gabriel's Horn. Of course, here we head out to Farmingdale, Long Island, to Gabriel's Horn, the hip hop and hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. And we talk and debate the most 1970s moment in the issue from either of the stories. Let's talk about the first story. Paul, do you want to kick us off? What do you have? Sure. Now, a couple of things. First, with the, the Robin jumping into the cab. How many cabbies nowadays wear the bow ties and the hats? <laughs> That's <laughs> a great one. Costume. He looks like space cabbie. <laughs> That's what I think happens. I love it. That's a great one, Paul. <laughs> and the other thing I had was the outfit. So Dick comes along, meets Lori. He's wearing his striped shirt and a vest with matching pants. Then he captures the, the car crooks who are all wearing striped shirts and a vest. That's <laughs> 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 just what Don Heck likes to draw, but that's very 70s outfit there. <laughs> Sean, do you have anything you want to mention? Okay, so on page 12 of the Robin and Batgirl story, when they visit the house for Georgetown, 
yeah. the woman's house gown that she's wearing. I thought that was very Ooh, uh, uh, the epitome nice of the 70s. And he's got a smoking jacket on. <laughs> That's what rich people wore. There you go. <laughs> on page 17, the prices of the carnival attractions. So brain and brawn feats of mental strength were 50 cents. Kathy Kane's aerial aces were 75 cents. <laughs> nice. So th- this is probably a really good one. So page 22, a payphone yeah. that Robin yeah, calls yeah, Kid yeah. Flash. Which yeah. That, yeah. And then on 24, that's the last page this is a kinda because i misremembered it in my head but i thought like at the end of the story robin says i gotta wait for kid flash to come back i need another quick favor from him i was thinking it said if he can type my finance paper as fast as i can dictate it which it technically it does not say type but i do think that's what yeah that's what he meant for. yeah someone that's on what he a meant. typewriter typing it so yep. So I'm gonna kind of say I'll that allow it. Nod I'll allow it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I have two, including one that was my favorite. The first one on page six, in the middle of the page, Babs has got her gown on and Kathy's outfit. She's got an ashtray on her nightstand there. Oh, you got that one? Kinda, sorta. We'll circle back around. And then my favorite one on page. 10, the bottom of page 10, as Robin exits his groovy van, he says, my life's beginning to sound like a Mary Hartman script. Yes. Yes. I think there was one I forgot. Oh. Now, I can't remember exactly what Mary Hartman, I think it was Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman was the name of the show, right? It's like a soap opera, right? Yeah. I don't remember much about the show. That's one I did catch. That was my favorite for the issue as well as the story. I thought. Very good. Yep. Those are it for the first story. And how about the Man Bat story, Paul W.? Well, the television, first and foremost. The tube television that uh, Ambrose is watching. Yeah. Does Ambrose's TV have a handle on the top? I think that is supposed to be a so handle. I think that's the antenna. Or oh, I think I think it's a handle because I think it's a, like a small portable TV. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I was wondering. Yeah. You got anything else on Man Bat story, Paul? No. Besides hairstyles? No. that's just uh, that's just gonna be everybody how about you sean so i do wgyn tv's monster mayhem at 4 a.m now it would either be news or infomercials you don't really have like late night movies definitely like on regular broadcast tv yeah like absolutely not and the fact that when they go to commercial they say now you can own all the greatest hits of cosmo puree for just six ninety eight, which I think is supposed to be like Perry Como thing, yeah. but you don't really see like the KTEL advertisements for ad- nice. for albums on TV, like featuring the greatest hits. So nice. Kind of the only caveat to that is if you watch PBS on the weekends, <laughs> they always have like TJ Lebinsky with it, like their yeah. music special. <laughs> on page three, Kirk says he gets one hundred and ten dollars in reward money. I looked it up. That's the equivalent of $540.94 today. Oh, nicely done. And we kind of talked about this, but on the Langstrom's TV, it does have a click button. Buttons on the top, yeah. Yeah, buttons don't, yeah. Now, Paul actually triggered one for me because he talked about Francine and in the panel, how like you can see her pregnant. And Francine's wearing like one of those like night shirts, like those super huge shirts that kind of like came down to like the knees. Like that's super, super 70s. And earlier, Paul talked about on Bab's night table, there was an ashtray. So on page six of this story, there's an ashtray mm-hmm. that man that throws at. And, yep. and obviously I know ashtrays are still a thing. And especially yeah. like, I could see like this person, the neighbor smoking. I don't know that Babs would be smoking, but for the 70s, you would have an ashtray right. 
for right. people who would, yeah. Right, as a courtesy for somebody comes into your house. That's kind of what I think we're implying. It's not, it's yeah. like you only would see it in a house where somebody smokes, not in everybody's right. house, right? Back then, it would have been rude not to have an ashtray. Right. Now it's rude for someone to come into your house and smoke. Right, exactly. So When the other thing I noticed, so last month, I was at the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. And back in the day, you would go to a tourist destination and they would have ashtrays on display. Like you would buy an ashtray and they, obviously they don't sell things like that anymore at the stores. No, kids don't come home with ashtrays from shop class anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that it, Sean? We are closing down the disco. Hold on. I have one last one. Oh, oh. I think you'll have you're the movie guy. But again, another pop culture reference, page six second panel ambrose says the demon reawakens if only i'd have enough gas bombs like carl denim used on kong is that the 1970s remake of kong or is that the 1933 original kong that's that's the original okay so yeah no we're not going to gabriel's horn with that we're going back to the dance hall yeah that's that's it back at the jsa headquarters or something yeah all right. I, I wasn't sure about that. I didn't look it up, but I noticed that that reference as I was. Oh, although actually I know that Carl Denham is from the original, but maybe he also was called that in the 70s. So Chris, Franklin, like anyone, if you want to chime in, because I'm not going to bother looking it up. That wraps it up for this issue. We want to thank our very special guest, Paul W., for stopping by the reunion this month. Paul W., would you like to remind folks where they can find you? All right. So if you listen to a few back episodes of MASHcasts, I appeared in seasons two, three, and four. Really enjoyed that. If you want to find me online, I'm at Paul Wilkenberger on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is The Voice of Paul. That's at Voice of Paul 3. Well, thanks for being on the show, Paul. We appreciate you taking the time. I love having the guests on the show and just getting to talk to various people. So thanks for, for being on. Well, I love family reunions. It's, it's nice to meet some cousins I haven't ever seen before. <laughs> so that's great. And you didn't have to win the lottery to meet <laughs> us. <laughs> that's right. And we're the best looking cousins uh, on the network. Naturally, yes. <laughs> now, we are going to play a couple of podcast promos. And when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Welcome back. Well, since Sean is visiting the Island of the Thousand Rivers, I'm going to take on the listener feedback solo this month, where we're going to talk about your feedback to our episode number 13, the TNT Trio Takes on the Outsider, 
where we had two guests, Tim Price and Dan Greenfield. First up, our bat cousin Harold Wall would write in and say this was a wonderful episode, and cousins Tim and Dan really added a lot. It struck a chord with me when Dan said that in 1977 was a magical time for him because of the Batman family and Detective Comics. I was 11 that summer, and those comics, along with the Huntress's first appearance in the All-Star, really captured my imagination and stayed with me. This issue was particularly memorable for me because of Man Bat's line that, quote, Bat and 50 Cents will get me a ride on the subway just became stuck in my brain and became a phrase that I stole and still use. Although with inflation, I've had to make a few adjustments. And yes, add me to that list of kids who bought that Marshall Rogers portfolio. And of course, I still have it. Looking forward to hearing you next month. Thanks for writing in. Next up, Network co-founder and vet cousin Chris Franklin says, Great show, guys. I loved hearing Tim and Dan chime in on this. Probably the best all caps, issue of Batman Family, and certainly the one with the most historical impact. And no, I'm not talking about the return of the outsider. I'm talking about the moment that had to stick out in the minds of creators like Chuck Dixon, who would later run with it, Dick's big, how much I feel moment with Babs. I first read this in that great Batman Family Digest, waiting for Sean to swoon. It was the biggest chunk of that issue, and I loved it then and now. Don Newton and Marshall Rogers are not only two of my all-time favorite comic artists, they are two of my favorite Bat artists, period. Interesting that both artists would draw a much more mature and older-looking Dick Grayson than many of their contemporaries, something George Perez would certainly do a lot with as well, absolutely. And then finally, despite the wonky, quote, only in Bronze Age comics logic here and there, the issue is so great, I can't even find much to add. Oh, I would have went for that Secret Origins book too, but we'd all been better off if we picked the Ali Treasury. Thanks, Chris. Our bat cousin, Bucky749, comes by. Hey, old chums, another great episode. And he and his cousin, Jeremy, brought the pack with us. And no, not the villains from the TV series, Gargoyles. He meant his canine companions. And they made bat burritos. So he's going on with a bunch of different styles of bat burritos listed on the website. You can check them out. Next up, a good friend of mine, Dan Doherty, says, Great show, cross-pollinated, entertainment, informative content, and very professionally delivered. You guys should be America's Got Talent next contestants. Well, thank you, Dan. I've been trying to convince Dan to come on the show. We'll see if I can make that happen. Our cousin Brian, enemy of the shoe, Shufo, comes in and says, I have had issues 13 to 15 since they were first published. I must have read them dozens of times as a kid. I have just reread them, and although I still remember bits and pieces of 14 and 15, the entire story of issue 13 was as fresh in my brain as when I was eight years old, probably because it was a multi-part story with memorable pictures. As an adult, I love some of the crazy layout angles, which look so natural. When Backwell's sleeping on the couch, when Alfred faints, the images are rotated to make the character fit into the box, but it is done so well, it doesn't look disorienting at all. The DC Multiverse Historian pipes in and says, this was my very first comic book at age seven which left me utterly baffled and completely enticed in this medium. As implausible as the different plot points were, they were executed so well that I thoroughly enjoyed this book-length tale. One thing I realized rereading it is that the news reporter, which Kirk and Francine are watching on the telly, is probably Martha Roberts, girlfriend of Daryl Dollman Dane from the Freedom Fighters, building upon the ties within the Rosakas verse. And then he adds a link to the Earth 1, Earth 2 blog, where they talked about Martha Roberts and the fact that Dane Whitman, the Dollman, fell in love with three different versions on Earth 2, Earth 1, and Earth X. So <laughs> it's a pretty good blog reading. So click on that link and take a read of it. Next up, prior guest, Word Hill Terry pops by the reunion, and he says that the issue before this was my first for Batman fans. And as so often happened in those days of dodgy distribution, I did not see this one on the stands. I did not acquire it until many years later, and so I don't have the same affection for it as you do. 
Nevertheless, I really appreciate you expressing your affection. I am not going to pick it apart. But while this podcast is so fresh in my ears, a couple things to point out. Dan, even if Don Newton had drawn only one Batgirl story, he should be considered among her best artists. The way he drew her in the two-part story in Detective 492, Vengeance Trail and at War with General Scar is Batgirl perfection. Tim, you keep going on and on about outsiders. Have you ever mentioned Ponyboy Curtis even once, or Daryl, or Soda Pop? And then Paul and Sean, you missed an opportunity in the Bat Family in this month's roundup of comics. Take a close look at the cover of Adventure 453. Recognize that red hair? That is a great catch word. I went on to Mike's Amazing World and I looked at that again. And that is Young Babs Gordon. Powling Superboy. Check it out, listeners. Good catch, Terry. Sorry we missed it. Chris Franklin also replies to Terry and says, Terry reminds me that I forgot to mention that Don Newton drew the sexiest Batgirl I had seen to that point outside of Yvonne Craig. That look she's given Robin after she rebuffs him following the motorcycle rescue, the shot of her thinking and Gabriel's horn, and especially the shots of her sans utility belt flipping around and fighting. Newton was a master of realistic anatomy. She looked like her costume was painted on. And all this without ever venturing into overly intentional titillation. Needless to say, it was very influential on me when I first read these stories at age 10. I hear you, Chris. Tim Price responds to Chris, says, yeah, this might be hard to believe, but I had the same thought. And Bella's Batgirl, but withheld it during our recording, our poor Paul would have even more editing out of me to do. <laughs> yes, Newton's Batgirl was gorgeous. Wow, he's out. And then Tim replies to Terry, hey, Terry, of course I know those outsiders by those nicknames. Ponyboy is Geoforce, Daryl is Metamorpho, and Soda Pop is Halo. I mean, obviously. Oh, and I just looked up the details on Adventure 453, and that's insane. You are a scholar, good sir. Well done. Wardell Terry responds back to Tim, no way, Geoforce is clearly a saw. Moving on, Siskoid tells us that's a great show, good guests, and that crazy else outsider. What else do we need? New commenter Rodney Trainer stops by the reunion. Welcome, Rodney. And he said, I know I gave a brief comment about this episode on Twitter, but I wanted to elaborate further on this particular episode and the issue of Batman Family. By the way, I did intend to bring a sweet potato casserole and pumpkin cheesecake to the reunion, but the greedy neighbors in my neighborhood helped themselves to my hard work and tasty food while promised me an actual copy of Detective Comics number 27. <laughs> I'm still waiting on that comic book. Probably a long time to wait, Rodney. Anyway, I first read the story in Batman Family 13 in the much-beloved Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest number 51. In the middle of stories featuring the first appearance of Ra's al Ghul and the Reaper was the Man-Bat story from the previous issue and this gem of a story from the TMT trio. Since I did not see the cover for Batman Family 13 in the Digest, I was curious as to who this Mr. O, the character in the Man-Bat story, alluded to. As I read about the insane Robin Batgirl race to New York and started the Man-Bat chapter of the story, I learned that Mr. O is a character with severely white skin, tons of acne craters, and purple speedo. This was my introduction to the Outsider, and I was intrigued by his ability to pretty much manipulate everything. Whatever you thought couldn't happen, did with the Outsider. Controlling two motorcycles, grabbing the moon from the sky, heaving it at his enemy, emerging from a computer screen to attack background Robin. The Outsider could do everything except get rid of those acne scars. At the time I first read the story, I did not realize this was Don Newton who did the pencils. I knew his work in the then current Batman series, but could not discern that this was a story Newton drew early in his career. One thing I did notice, even at seven years old, was his depiction of Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Batgirl. His Batgirl was one that stood and moved confidently. She also looked quite sexy and sleek in her skin-tight costume. I was familiar with Yvonne Craig's depiction of Batgirl on the TV show, but this was the Batgirl that I admit to having a childhood crush on. When I lost the copy of this digest, 
I still had strong notions of the story, especially the depiction of one of my favorite redheads. I don't think you're going to get any disagreement from anybody, Rodney. And finally, he says, over a decade ago, I found a copy of Batman Family 13 at the local comic shop that is currently no longer in business. My memory was hazy to the details, but I hunched that this was the actual issue featuring the story with Robin and Batgirl and Man Bat versus the outsider that I had read years ago. To my delight, my hunch was right, and I read the story feeling nostalgic about reading that digest in school and at home, loving these stories. I also wondered how Barbara was able to peel out of that costume. Last year, I found another copy of the Batman Family Digest that I had lost years ago, so I can revisit the story whenever I want, although now with reading glasses. I hear you on the digest. This was a fun and crazy story that I have to say is one of my favorite Bat-related stories ever. Well, thanks for writing in, Rodney. That was awesome. We appreciate it. Next up, guest of this episode, Paul Wildenberger, says this was another fantastic episode. Dan and Tim were both great guests with lots of insight on both the issue and comic book history. I pity the poor fool who has to follow them. <laughs> I don't have this issue yet, but I must get my hands on it soon so I can experience it in all its glory. Even knowing the ending, from what I just heard, it's going to be one wild ride. I like the idea of interconnecting all the current Bat family members into one cohesive storyline. And that last bit, Batwoman shows up at Bab's door just to melt away. I can't wait to read the next issue to see what that's all about. And thanks, Paul. You were a great guest this episode, so thanks for coming on. Matthew Davis, our bat cousin, comes up next, and he says, Great episode, guys. What a birthday present to get a new episode in my feed. It makes up for the head cold I'm dealing with. Yeah, a lot of Bronze Age logic is at play in this story, but isn't that why we love them? For some reason, I thought something was said that the flashlights were made to shine concentrated moonlight. And maybe it doesn't explicitly stay in the story, but it seems that the outsider, once he was separated from Alfred, shut down his powers, a case where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that sounds about right. And artwork by Don Newton and Marshall Rogers. Only bad thing is we didn't get Batgirl drawn by Marshall Rogers. Yeah, that would have been nice. I don't know why, but all this time, I thought the first prizes in the contest was a choice of one of the other movie appearance or office tour. Heck, as a 10-year-old, I would have been fine with a tour of the DC offices, I don't know if my mother would have been fine with me going to New York City in the 1970s, though. At least they anticipated that a lot of the entries might come from kids. I was surprised when you said that the Norman Brayfogle Robin costume was redone from the original entry. Knowing his artwork looks like 10 years after this, I could see it eventually progressing to that point. Two very 70s things that I don't know if anyone else noticed. First, the artist rendering in the newscasts. Those days with cell phones and security cameras everywhere. Something like that may be limited to courtroom sketches, but more common back then. Second, the movie contest rules say, First prize winners will be notified by telegram. Does anyone ever remember receiving a telegram? Because I know I never have, and I really can't remember my parents receiving one either. Welcome to Gabriel's Horn, Matthew. Great. Both of them are great. Have a great January, everybody, he says. Tim Price logs back in and says, I'm going to put in another thank you to Paul and Sean for having me on the show and to Dan for sharing the guest spot with me. It was such a fun conversation. I didn't want it to end. Thanks, gang. Well, you're welcome, Tim. Thank you for being on. Speaking of ending, one last point I didn't get to. The Bat family keeping Alfred's condition from him. Does this seem like a bad idea? I mean, if an innocent bump to the head could turn you into an omnipotent supervillain, shouldn't that be discussed a little? Or at least invest in a decent helmet for Alfred to wear? Till the next reunion, I'll bring this frozen strawberry dessert. <laughs> Michael Young, our Bat Cousin, comes up and says, Hey, Bat Cousin, sorry I'm late. I brought several mayonnaise-based salads. I am instantly regretting it. Before we start, when I heard my name and future guest, my heart soared. 
I immediately ran over to the cliff wards by the pavilion to sign up. So I either signed up to visit the main family gardens or pick kickball. Either way, I'm in. So, yeah, sorry, Brett. Forgot that you hadn't actually signed up yet, so I didn't mean to surprise you there. But let's set the record straight. Brett comes on back to say, there is a better chance of the Kiss Marvel Super Specials ink containing gold than there is actual blood. I guarantee Stan Lee gave the vial to an intern in lieu of pain. Batman Family 13 has a great cover. I love power of symmetry and storytelling just with this image. Good stuff. The whole story was a lot of fun and the best to date. Robin and Batgirl look great and Don Newton's are and the duo really got to show off their excellent hearing by carrying on a lengthy conversation while going 75 miles per hour on separate motorcycles. The man-bat art continues to get better and better. The finishing flying kick on the Sunset Gang Lady looks just like a Walt Simonson panel. Also, did anybody else catch the news broadcast saying Doll Man killed somebody? Is there a more humiliating hero to be murdered by than Doll Man? There he is, officer. That's the poseable action figure who killed my while wow, where Jaguar named Turunku has way too many pronunciation problems, I do appreciate the outsider following up his word salad with reference to the Batman family. Way to be a company man, outsider. Somebody needs to help Robin work on his game. Telling Babs he has a pick of babes at school and then invoking the hot for fifth grade teacher fantasy probably isn't the best way to get with her. I think that Bat Cousin Dan is on the right track that Barbara's nap was coverage. But come on, Babs, give Dick a chance. The way that didn't come out right. He's a good guy, and it's not like you're going to meet someone better at work. Most of your coworkers in Congress are septuagenarians who are still grumbling about some people getting rights. <laughs> oh, the ending of the story escalated quickly. Man Bat killed a were jaguar with a trident. Then he skins the dead creature and wears its flesh as a full bodysuit. This is dark, even for a man who is a bat. Should probably skip telling his wife that part of the story. Unless she's into that, which is entirely possible, she's given to a man. She's married to a man that. Great fight storytelling by Newton and Wyatt Gotta love Robin shining the light on the outsider and separating Alfred, who appears in full butler tuxedo, of course. Does this poor guy ever get to wear anything else? Regarding the flashlight, if this would end the fight, why didn't Robin open with this? Maybe he was still in shock from his fellow hero showing up ensconced in dead jaguar. <laughs> well, gotta run. Uncle Ed did a sample platter of my mayo-based salads, and if they'd been out in the sun for three hours, we're gonna need a porta potty, maybe a priest. <laughs> Brett, thanks again. Love how you get into it. Next up, Bat Cousin Lizanne Oswald stops by and says, "Impressive podcast, most impressive." Sorry, I'm a little late to the party. Busy week with doctor's visits and whatnot. And anyway, I went out and actually got this comp. Well, I downloaded it from Amazon. So not much the same way as fashion in this issue, since no one is really wearing any normal clothes, except Alfred needs really just a cool tux. Uh, and they were able to combine all these characters in one story I did like that. I'm not overly impressed with Kurt's bathrobe and pants. <laughs> the cover looks great, with the outsiders the main centerpiece, and him holding up the defeated Blabs and Robin. Lizanne ends with saying, can't wait till the next issues. I had no fashion foot pods to talk about, but when you get to issue 19, I have a lot to say. Cannot wait to hear the next podcast. Thanks, Lizanne. Bat cousin from across the pond, Martin Gray, pops in. Hi, chaps. Apologies for the slow reply. I'm on a secret mission for Alfred's old OSS handlers, but expect me to bring back Baked Alaska to the next reunion. Oh, that sounds good. What a bonkers issue. What great guests. What terrific hosts. What is Moon Pie? There was a comment made by one of the guest lads that the Green Lantern title was saved by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams when they added Green Era. I thought this was a last-ditch attempt to save the book. Remember, while they were critical plaudits, it soon got canceled anyway. That's actually right. He goes on to say, I was a fan of Don Newton, but not a great booster for his background. She looked too realistic to me, not exciting enough, too lanky. That said, 
The panel of her hugging her knees is adorable and very informative as regards the angle of her bat ears. How interesting to hear that the outsider is Alfred Reveal was made up on the fly. No wonder it makes not a lick of sense. I read the original outsider stories in UK Double Comics. Ask me that then next time I'm on, he said, hopefully presumptuously. We would love to have you back on, Martin. No question about it. And then Rob McCarthy had the pipe in and saying not having read the original Outsiders, his whole gimmick is knowing Batman's secrets. It either has to be Alfred or a smarter version of Killer Moth than we ever saw. <laughs> he goes on to add some new additions to the Joker mythology. So thanks, Rob. And that's it for the comments. Thanks for everybody for hanging with me. A little harder to do it on your own. We're going to hold off on the social media till next issue where we'll do a double shot. Before we sign off, I want to remind you that, as most of you know, running the Firewater Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you enjoyed what you hear on this show or any of our shows, please consider becoming a patron. You can't all be Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost and help Babs and Dick get new motorcycles. To find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and thanks. So that'll do it for the feedback section and for episode 14 overall. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our guest this episode, Paul Lindenberger. We will see you next month and have a great day.